This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. So today we are going to talk about the future. If I had better uh, production skills, I would like make some effects on that word and make it sound, you know, futuristic and echoey the way that the future was imagined in the, in the eighties or something, but (laughs) the future in the sense of distributed decentralized platforms where person to person interactions, exchanges of goods, ideas can happen and how this kind of flowering is happening all around us. I, I, I sort of see there as being two major in my lifetime two major moments, kind of breakthrough moments in technological progress. And the first being the internet, which really changed the way that the, the, the mediums that we use to interact with third parties in our different exchanges. So instead of, you know, um, going to Walmart, uh, which is the third party to, to purchase our goods, we stay at home and go to Walmart's website or maybe Amazon. Uh, and it's much easier. It's much more efficient. It reduces that transaction cost for us, for the consumer. Um, but we're still going through that third party just in a new way. So the internet had this massive boom and opened up all these different things. Same with financial. I mean, you, you don't go to your bank anymore. You use your app on your phone to interact with your bank. So you're using a different platform, but you're still going through that third party. With the advent of the blockchain, which is what Bitcoin is built off of uh, and many other things in um, this kind of... Uh, I don't even fully understand all of it. We'll get into it today. This kind of crypto uh, revolution, if you will. Now we're actually removing those third parties altogether. So instead of just changing the way in which we interact with those kind of um, you know firms or entities that centralize things, we're actually able to bypass them altogether and interact directly with each other, which is a very sort of old school, small town form of economic exchange um, that previously was just too inefficient on a large scale, but this technology has changed that. So that's what we're going to talk about today. My guest is Sam Patterson. Uh, you might remember from a few earlier podcasts, I've had Steve Patterson on the show. And even though it's a somewhat common last name, they are related, they're brothers. Uh, and Sam works on the project Open Bazaar, which is a really fascinating decentralized marketplace. And we're going to get into that a lot today. So Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Isaac. So I I put you through a really long setup. I'm sorry for that. Uh, (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit um, about sort of your personal story and and how you got where you are and and some other things that you're interested in. You're kind of a, uh, you're kind of a Renaissance man. You're interested in a lot of things. You also unschool. I want to get to some of those maybe near the end, but I want to start out talking about Open Bazaar and your personal involvement with the project. How did you get involved with Open Bazaar? How, what was the genesis of that? So it's a great question uh, because originally I was involved in Bitcoin sort of broadly speaking. And um, my original involvement in Bitcoin was basically I had a lot of friends who were sort of in the libertarian uh, space, if you will. And they kept talking about it. And, and at first, like many folks, I rejected the idea of Bitcoin because uh, I sort of thought that you know hard money, gold, that kind of stuff was, was more legitimate. Uh, but I really respected some of these people, and they continued to hound me on it. And so I finally started to do some research and came to the conclusion that actually this is pretty cool. And in doing that research, I found that there's no really, this was in late 2012, 
there's no great one resource for people to understand what Bitcoin is, how it works. I was forced to do, you know, searching all over the internet. And so I decided, well, this is pretty neat. I think it's going to get bigger. So I'm going to write a book on the subject. Uh, and so early 2013, I started writing the first, uh, one of the first, at least, guides to using Bitcoin. It was called Bitcoin Beginner. Uh, I worked through a, a publisher out of uh, the Netherlands, and we put up a, a simple short ebook on Amazon uh, called Bitcoin Beginner. Well, uh, that became the sort of the, the bestseller on Amazon for Bitcoin for a couple of years, uh, which was really exciting to see. And then, of course, my brother uh, Stephen, who you've already talked to, published a book earlier this year um, called What's the Big Deal About Bitcoin, which is much better than my book. <laughs> I was going to ask if there was any brotherly competition there. No, not at all. His book is clearly better. It's more updated. It's, it's longer. Uh, so whenever I talk about my book, I always say, no, you need to buy my brother's book. Mine's outdated. It was written in 2013. So <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly uh, anything on the subject of technology it becomes outdated, you know? Exactly, exactly. So you wrote so, this book about Bitcoin, and this was 2013, and you were just, as as kind of a, as a hobby, basically, you were kind of exploring Bitcoin or mining it or something like that, kind of a part of the community? Yeah, I, I, I actually did a little bit of mining just so I could learn more about how it works. I never did it to make money. And by that time, you couldn't really make money at mining unless you bought serious hardware and stuff, which I didn't. Uh, it was, to me, it was just something that interested me. I've always been interested in new technology. Um, I was a ham radio operator as a teenager. I did some computer programming. I just, I like new technology and fiddling with stuff. So I did that and that was sort of successful. And uh, I got reached out, I, I approached by a book publisher. And they basically said, uh, we want you to write a full length book on Bitcoin. And uh, this was in probably, <clears throat> late 2013 and I went back and forth with them but but my bottom line was actually that I and this is another subject altogether but intellectual property laws I think are uh, are suspect uh, and, and I didn't want to make money off of that uh, my book actually I sold to the publisher for a flat rate I didn't make royalties off of it yeah I see that it's free on Kindle uh, right now yeah and so uh, anyway I thought you know Bitcoin, there are already people starting to write more about it, and, and that's sort of already been done. I wanted something new. So I turned down that book offer, and I thought, you know, my next book, I'm going to crowdfund. And so I started looking for book ideas. Um, and one thing that caught my eye, this was in... And have you always been a writer, or was this kind of a new thing for you? Um, well, I've never, I've never published anything previously. Um, I had maintained many blogs uh, on different subjects previously. Uh, I did quite a bit of of writing uh, while I was in college, and uh, so never never published a book, but did a lot of writing. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> so April 2014, I noticed on on Reddit, I think that there's this new project that won a hackathon in Toronto called Dark Market, and Dark Market was uh, the winning hackathon entry by Amir Taki and some of his friends. Uh, what they did <clears throat> was they built a prototype of a decentralized marketplace, meaning you could buy or sell anything with someone else directly if you each ran the program on your local computer. And it used Bitcoin. This was a Bitcoin hackathon. And I thought, you know, that's a really powerful idea. Like that, that, that could be something that could become 
successful and, and widespread, and people would like to read about it. So I thought, my next book is going to be about decentralized markets, the emergence of decentralized markets. And so the issue was dark market was not going to be continued development. Amir Taki and the other guys uh, just did it for the hackathon, and they weren't continuing development of the code. Fortunately, uh, only a few days later, someone forked the code. And if you're familiar with how open source code works, forking it just means you make a copy, and it becomes a new project all in its own. And it was renamed to Open Bazaar. And Which is a lot less uh, sort of cool and ominous, but also uh, a lot less scary than, yes, than Dark Yes, it's a market. lot more friendly. And, and the guy that forked it, his name was Brian Hoffman. He lived in Northern Virginia, and I did too, just coincidentally. So I reached out to him, and I said, hey, I am looking to sort of be the person cataloging, uh, the person that's recording the rise of decentralized markets. I want to write a book on the subject. Can I interview you? And he said, okay, uh, you know, sure, whatever. So we met at a Starbucks. This is in probably uh, mid middle of May in 2014. And I just got an audio recorder out and I sort of pretended to be a journalist and asked him a bunch of questions. And, and we talked for a little over an hour, I think. And I was so compelled by his vision for what Open Bazaar could be that I thought, you know what? Forget the book. I'm just going to help this guy build this thing. And so I joined the project. Did, and did you have um, did you have like coding skills at the time? Like you you had something tangible that you could do immediately to help them build it. That's the thing. I, I didn't really. I'm not a programmer. I did a little bit. I fiddled around as a teen, but I never went that down that path. And so I don't really have programming skills. So what was the uh, value proposition? This, this guy was doing this just like as a volunteer effort, or was this a business at this time? Oh no, no, this was completely volunteer. Okay, side so you project. just said I'll do anything. Yep. I basically, that's, that's what I said. I said, Hey, <laughs> and, and actually what, what, what ended up happening is, uh, uh, there are a lot of aspects to the project that are not just in the code. And I basically became the lead on all that stuff. So we just called me the operations lead, uh, as if titles in an open source project really matter much. <laughs> but, uh, and so, and basically from that point on, I became I guess Brian's right-hand man, and I just helped uh, develop the project and, and go from that point. So, so this being a volunteer effort, I know there's like a team, kind of, sort of a core team that's that's primarily putting in the time, and I imagine there's a lot of other people that sort of pop in and out and do things um, wherever, whenever they can. What is, what does that look like in terms of uh, Brian's time, your time? I mean, are you how much time are you spending on Open Bazaar? Versus, and, and we'll get to uh, OB1, which is which recently received some some venture capital funding. So I know that might change this answer. But prior to that, how were you d divvying up your time? I mean, were you working on this five, 10 hours a week, 30, 40 hours a week? What did that look like? Well, so of course, all of the people on the project had full time jobs. And, and um, you know, originally the team from when this sort of first started in April, May, up until maybe August was basically more or less it was three or four people. Uh, it was Brian, me, uh, Dr. Washington Sanchez, who is uh, actually a cancer researcher in Australia, um, and then uh, Dionysus Zindros, who was a, a Greek computer science student at the time and ended up working at Google. Uh, it was more or less that group for, for quite a while. And then we had another guy join us from the BitTorrent community, Angel Leon. And so up until sort of fall of 2014, it was, yeah, it was just us, 
putting our spare time in. Um, some of us contributed more than others. Brian and I and Doc especially put in a, a lot of time. Uh, I think there, you know, not to put anyone on the spot, but uh, there may have been people working during their full time a little bit occasionally. <laughs> uh, just because we were so compelled by this vision of decentralized free trade. Um, and so the bottom line is this this became uh, I don't know if an obsession is the right word but certainly it took an inordinate amount of our time that we are not being paid and um, and as you referred to earlier we eventually took it to now creating a company in order to do this full-time and secure venture capital funding which which occurred just in the past few months so I want to talk a little bit about that in a minute um, sure. but first I know you you briefly defined it um, we kind of jumped right in Give me for somebody who's totally unfamiliar. Yeah. What is Open Bazaar? Sure. So, to to back up and sort of set the stage for why we are so excited about Open Bazaar and think it has so much potential, uh, you know, there's been a lot of sort of gatekeepers through history who have controlled the flow of information, and you already referred to this in your in your introduction a little bit when talking about the media and e-commerce and stuff, but. You know, before, if we go way back, before the printing press, books were very rare, very expensive, and the knowledge contained in them was, was centralized with the people who controlled them, often the church or other institutions. The printing press came along and sort of decentralized book ownership and the ideas within. So more people now had access to those ideas. <clears throat> and you move further, the media is also a gatekeeper of these ideas. So radio, you know, if you had a big radio station, you naturally controlled the flow of information one way from that station to everyone else. And it was very hard to get on that station unless you had money. Newspapers were the same thing. Books were the same thing too. It's good that they're decentralized, but publishing a book is still not something the average person you know, was able to do. The internet came along and completely blew all that out of the water. Now you can communicate at essentially no cost or very low cost with anyone in the world uh, and ideas flow both ways. So that was a huge revolution to break down those gatekeepers of ideas. The same thing is beginning to happen with money, right? Banks have always been that central institution that you had to rely on. Control of the money supply was controlled by them as well as central banks, the governments, controlling the issuance of money. We started to get payment processors come in, but they still are reliant on things like the state fiat money, and they have to follow all the rules um, that the government sets up. And then Bitcoin comes along, and you actually own your own money and can send it directly to anyone else. So that decentralizes uh, uh, the flow of money and the ownership of money. But e-commerce uh, is still completely centralized. You have Amazon, you have eBay, you have Etsy, and they provide a service which is connecting buyers and sellers together. They provide the infrastructure. They have their servers where you meet and you do your business. But in order to provide that service and the infrastructure, they charge you fees. They monitor your data. They have to censor transactions based on their own policies, based also on uh, government rules. So what Open Bazaar is is we see this as a way to decentralize trade, to take the power away from those centralized institutions and allow people to trade directly with each other. And the way that works is pretty simple. You download a computer onto your program, your computer locally, and that program connects you to a network of other users who've done the same thing, downloaded that software and run it themselves. And then transactions occur directly between 
those individuals with no middleman involved, there's no fees charged, there's no data being monitored by a central group, transactions cannot be censored because it's directly between two people. <clears throat> and so it gives you control back over your own online trade. So um, before, or let me let me quickly for any listeners who are not familiar, there was a, a website called Silk Road um, that was around for for a good bit before it got uh, basically shut down by the feds, more or <laughs> yeah, less. Yeah. Um, and that was, to my knowledge, similar a, a decentralized uh, marketplace that utilized Bitcoin and allowed you to buy and sell. <laughs> anonymously, um, and it was primarily used for a lot of uh, activities that are banned in many countries and states, things like um, purchasing hallucinogenic mushrooms or marijuana. Um, in some cases, uh, things that would make us much more uncomfortable, like uh, paying hitmen, apparently. <laughs> um, so, but it was this, it was this marketplace, and it had legal things as well, to my knowledge, and that eventually went down. Is Open Bazaar basically another version of Silk Road, or is there anything about it that's that's substantially different? No, it, it's completely different. Uh, and the reason why is uh, you introduced Silk Road by saying it was decentralized, and that's actually inaccurate. Silk Road was centralized. Okay, it, so they, they were was, taking a percent of every transaction, right. but the, it was just that it was you, it was anonymous. That was the big thing. That's exactly right. So okay. they were basically a illicit Amazon, more or okay. less, uh, or, or even better, an illicit eBay. They allowed people to use their platform to connect buyers and sellers together, mostly for illicit things. Uh, they took a cut of transactions. They controlled the trade on the network. They, they were a centralized institution. So the reason Open Bazaar is different is that it is decentralized and no one controls the network. So yes, people can use it for illicit things, but it's not controlled by the core developers or any company or anyone. It's just people using this sort of neutral technology to transact. With so, so there's clearly some benefits to that I mean, for one, uh, the, the very thing that ended up getting Silk Road shut down is not, um, is not really a possibility with this, just like with, with, uh, Bitcoin, because there's no, there's no one entity that's liable for what individual parties do. Um, it's yes. basically, it's basically like a virtual version of two individuals walking into a park and, paying each other cash for, you know, whatever, some widget or something. And there's no, you know, there's, there's no other party that's, that's involved and liable. Uh, and there's other benefits, obviously the, the absence of fees and things like that, but how would you respond to, okay, so there's this, there's this phenomenal seminal paper that's kind of been the, the most, um, insightful explanation for why firms exist for many, many years, which is Ronald Coase's paper on the, the theory of the firm. Um, and essentially, the conclusion is firms exist because there are transaction costs. Every time you buy something, sell something, it's more than the cost of the actual purchase. You have to find the buyer or the seller. You have to have some level of trust, some ability to verify that they mean what they say. You have to, you know, there's various things involved in the transaction, travel to each other, et cetera. And even though the internet dramatically reduces transaction costs. And even though uh, things like Bitcoin reduce them even more, because now you don't have to go through, pay fees to these um, you know, central banking institutions, et cetera, there still are transaction costs with every transaction. And so right now, the big companies we see in what's called sort of the sharing economy, which is kind of like a way to facilitate peer-to-peer -peer transactions. There's still that third party, but it's, you know, I have a, a room to let out. It would never be worth it for me before Airbnb to 
try to advertise somehow that I have this room and other people to look it up and find there's too many transaction costs. But now Airbnb exists. I can put my room up there uh, for rent. Um, they reduce the, the cost of me figuring out the right price. They reduce the cost of me advertising. And for the people looking for rooms, the big advantage that the, the transaction cost that gets reduced by Airbnb, by that third party, is the verification and the validation. Same with Uber. It's they provide a way, not only them as a company, but all the users on their network can rate me, can they'll kick me off if I do bad things. So with Open Bazaar being purely peer-to-peer, with no third party taking a cut, how do you it seems like the transaction cost would be so high. If I go on there and there's no, I I sort of have some trust in eBay that they're not going to let someone on there who's totally awful between eBay or Amazon, whatever, and all the user ratings. um, I'm sort of putting my trust in this third party to, to, to bring the information cost down and, and communicate to me that this is a valid person. How is that function accomplished without that third party? So there's a couple a couple ways, and that, it's a great question. It's one of the first things that, that folks ask. More or less, how can we trust the platform uh, and trust the other users on the platform? And uh, there's a couple ways to do it. One is that we are developing a, a, a rating reputation system within the platform itself, so that you will be able to look at someone's more or less their past history and see how other uh, buyers have have rated them. So you still have you still have the, the platform itself is able to facilitate user ratings and those types of things. They're just not yes. they're just not coming from like Open Bazaar itself. It's it's not done by a central institution. Um, it's done. It's actually a pretty complicated process that we're working through now. But more or less, uh, every trade has a a contract structure that all the details of the trade are are put into it. At the end, you can append a. Uh, rating and uh, review, and then other folks are able to see that in their history. And and the the details of the contract can be blinded and stuff, so there's no privacy implications. Can whatnot. can you copy like pre-existing templates? Because that that seems like a pretty high transaction cost again to go on and say, okay, I'm going to sell this thing or buy this thing, but I have to sort of write up a contract in the process. Is oh there- no 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 no. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I use the term contract because uh, it's based on something called a Ricardian contract, which is a certain uh, type of data structure. Is it, is it named the after user, the economist, Ricardo? Yes. All right, so give, give me a quick rundown of what a Ricardian contract is. This, well, actually, this is exciting. Well, what I uh, so the guy developing was an Australian researcher called Ian Grigg. So anyone is w- welcome to go online, search Ian Grigg, Ricardian contract, and you can read all about it. But the bottom line is, it is a data structure that's designed to be both machine readable and human readable and it contains all the details of the transaction to take place either a good or a service as well as the the cryptographic ability to sign that document to prove that it's done by a particular person mm. uh, so and and the keys to verify it later so the bottom line is this it's one document that at any point in the process any party can review to make sure that it is cryptographically accurate and contains all the knowledge that you need to continue on with the trade. Okay. Okay. Uh, so cool. anyway, but, but my, my point in, in, in explaining that is to say our client, meaning the interface that you use to, to, to access the network and stuff, does all of this automatically for you. You don't have to, it's just the same as any other e-commerce experience. You put in the details of your product, it makes that contract for you. Right? You don't have to do any of that. Okay. So that's more if there is a problem 
there's yeah. something um, there's something that essentially both parties have have agreed to. There's some basis to begin any well, kind of uh, that's what, negotiating or whatever. And that's the other part. So that's the rating system and the review system. So you can attach rating and reviews to that contract. Other people can see it. But uh, the other more important part of it is something we haven't talked about, which is the fact that there are voluntary third parties involved with open bizarre transactions. Now, the, the difference is a centralized institution, it's not voluntary. You are forced to use them and you're forced to agree to their dispute resolution and their terms and conditions and all that. Would this be analogous to when you uh, make a Bitcoin transaction, there's somebody else who verifies it on the ledger? Uh, not, not, okay, go ahead. Not exactly. Um, in fact, the reason that we use Bitcoin for Open Bazaar is not just because we are big Bitcoin geeks, although we all are. Uh, it's because there's a function in, in uh, Bitcoin called multi-sig. And, and I'll just take a second to explain this. I won't go too in-depth. But uh, ownership of Bitcoin is actually ownership of what's called a private key. It basically, it's just a piece of data that allows you to prove to everyone else in the network that you own that piece of Bitcoin by creating a signature, basically. Now, something really neat about a Bitcoin is that you can actually have joint ownership of Bitcoin. And the way this works is you have multiple people who have private keys to the same amount of Bitcoin, but a certain number of them must agree where they go before the funds can be sent. So there's one particular transaction in multi-sig called two of three transaction, which means you need two of three people who own those private keys to agree where the funds are going to go before they can be sent. So this allows for trustless escrow, meaning in a normal escrow situation, if you give your money to a third party, that third party can actually run off with your money, right? That's that's a that's a threat. Uh, it's it's uh, you know potentially dangerous to to trust escrow systems. But with this multi-sig escrow, which allows, is why they've pretty much only been utilized by you know sort of very large, very uh, capital-intensive banking institutions exactly. or whatever that, that, that can exactly. demonstrate I'm not going to run off with your money. But it's it, it hasn't been something available to most sort of that's small right. time. And that's why banks, when they build new banks, they look so big and imposing and expensive because people know well they're not going to pull up their roots, right? <laughs> they're not going to leave town. Uh, anyway. What this multi-sig allows is to say, we're going to both agree, both the buyer and the seller are going to agree to appoint this third party and say they're going to have a third signing key. And now for the funds to come out of this multi-sig, when the buyer purchases the product, they fund this, this multi-sig account with three owners. If the transaction goes through correctly, right, if they ship the good and everything's in order, the buyer and the seller can both agree, yes, everything went according to the terms of the contract, and then they sign those funds out together to the seller. Now that means there's only two parties involved, the buyer and the seller, everything went through, the Bitcoin ended up with the seller, the good ended up with the buyer, everyone's happy. But if there's an issue, it now means either the buyer or the seller can reach out to this third party and say, this other party you know, didn't fulfill their contract, and then they can join with that other third party and sign the funds out either to refund the buyer or release them to the seller. But they don't have to trust that third party entirely. They can only join with one other party to release the funds. So it's this new sort of system where you do have a third party that's optionally chosen. Is that third and, party yeah. anonymous? Because I could imagine, let's say, you know, if I'm like, hey, hey, Sam, you be the third party and then uh, I'm going to sell this, you know, 
I'm going to sell some good that's not what I said it was. And then when they complain, you and I can both just agree that the funds will go to me anyway and we'll split it. Right. So collusion between uh, the third party, we call the third party a moderator, by the way. Okay, moderator. Collusion between the moderator and the other parties is, of course, always, you know, uh, potentially problematic. So the way we get around that is, is a few things. One is, of course, we have this, this rating and reputation system. So naturally, if someone were to scam someone, that impacts their reputation negatively, and they shouldn't be, be chosen further. Uh, but, but a more important one is uh, users are welcome to voluntarily identify themselves publicly, uh, tie their reputations to their public you know, profiles and whatnot. What we expect is that buyers often won't won't choose to do that. They'll choose to remain pseudonymous. Uh, vendors may or may not, you know, it sort of depends on the nature of what they're selling perhaps, but we expect most moderators will choose to identify because they're more likely to be chosen uh, instead of being anonymous. So they want to they develop a reputation. Well, what, what do you get as a moderator? Do you get anything out of this? Yes, and so another potentially a cool use of Bitcoin is again this multi-signature. When you sign the funds out of multi-signature, if the moderator is joining to sign the funds out, they take a percent of the overall transaction and send it to themselves, as long as the other party signs with them to agree. And the neat thing about this Ricardian contract structure that I mentioned earlier is before when you choose that moderator, their percentage that comes out of the uh, multi-sig is in the terms of the contract. So all parties are agreeing in the event of a dispute to pay the moderator, say, 1% or 2% of the overall transaction cost if a dispute resolution is needed. So that's only if, so if, if you and me buy and sell to each other and we both agree and the, and the moderator's not needed at all, they don't get any cut of that. It's only if their sort of services as, a, as an arbitrator, more or less, are utilized that they get a percentage. In the current setup, that is how it works. Now, we are talking about potentially allowing for something like a 1% tip to moderators for every transaction they're involved in, uh, because what we're not certain of yet is how uh, how much um, work is the moderator going to need to do versus how much they're paid. And so, of course, if, if they're not incentivized properly, we're going to see a lot of moderators drop out of the network pretty quickly. And we want to make sure there are plenty of moderators. So we don't have the final structure finalized yet but because uh, we're still in beta. But at some point, the, the fee structure will be set and, and, uh, and open. And, and by the way, it's, it is voluntary. Uh, moderators can charge whatever they want. They could charge 10% per transaction, which would be crazy, or they can do it for free. You know, it's up to them. It's a free market. Okay. All right. So I've got I've got like several different questions that all go in different <laughs> in different directions. So I'm just going to sort of pick at random. What um, I mean when when I hear you describe the way this works, I immediately think, oh, that's something that I'm probably not going to do because it sounds a little bit more involved. You know, going on Open Bazaar versus Amazon or eBay. I have to actually download something to my physical machine. And this is also one of the potential drawbacks of Bitcoin, unless you use uh, Coinbase or one of these um, you yeah. know, online wallets, is that I, I sort of, I'm happy that the world is moving away from my physical machine at home being important. I want it to just be like, it doesn't matter. I can get online on any machine and access everything I need. It's all you know in the cloud or whatever. It's so much easier. I don't have to worry about spilling water on my hard drive or any of this stuff. 
But now sort of one of the da- drawbacks of things like Bitcoin and, and um, you know, this kind of peer-to-peer stuff that because it because you don't want to rely on whoever owns the server space in the cloud, everybody's got to have stuff on their individual machine. And that sounds like work. I've got to download some software. I've like, do I have to be a techie? How, how do you overcome that hurdle sure. and make this accessible to the broader world? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So there's a, a couple things there. One is that, first of all, we are working our hardest to make sure that this is completely dead simple to download, install, and run. Uh, for example, if you use something like Spotify or if you use something like Skype, uh, those are programs that you download and that you run uh, desktop apps. And they're pretty easy to do and they're, they're pretty popular programs. So we think that OpenBazaar will be in that, in that category. So if it's as simple uh, as just clicking a button that says download and I don't, know, I don't even know the difference of whether or not, like I, I forget that Skype is actually downloaded on my computer because it, it just feels like interacting with any other online application. Yeah, that's kind of the goal. Uh, okay, but but, but uh, the the potentially even more important part is this is this is peer to peer, but it doesn't need to be run on a local machine. So if you want to run it in the cloud, right? If you want to put it on a virtual private server like DigitalOcean or you know Amazon Web Services or whatever, you can do that, and then you can reach your Open Bazaar node via a web interface, just logging okay. into a website like anything else. So then it's just my individual, you know, whatever portion of the of the program that's that's in the cloud, but it's not it's not that the entire sort of thing is housed by in one place by one third party. So it still has that distributed um, distributed component even if I individually choose to not put it on my local hard drive. Exactly. Okay. And there are already there's already one company that has formed uh, in order to provide this service to people. Uh, it's called Provistor. Uh, if you go to provistor.com, you can tie a DigitalOcean account to an OpenBazaar node uh, for free if you do just one node, uh, and then access your OpenBazaar interface uh, via a web browser. So I, I think that will become a pretty popular option for people who don't want to have to run it locally and still pay, you know, nothing, no fees or, or very small fees compared to eBay or Amazon or anyone else. Okay, so where is Open Bazaar at right now? I mean, is it is it a live marketplace with transactions happening today? If I went on there, could I find items? Could I purchase? Could I sell things? Sort of. Uh, it is in beta. It's in a still fairly early in the beta process, which means you can create a store, you can put products up for sale, you can buy items but most people on the network are just testing it they're not actually running real stores at this point now there have been real transactions done on the network um i bought some honey from a beekeeper up in ohio um there's some people who do handcraft that items um that have been sold like pens and whatnot so there's small stuff that you can buy but but more or less it's still in the beta phase our our roadmap uh has now accelerated uh, because we've gotten funding, which is really exciting. And the, the goal is more or less to have a first full release where people will actually, you know, average Bitcoin users will go on there and be able to buy and sell stuff uh, in the middle of November is when we hope the first one comes out. So I want to um, talk about one other thing and then ask you a little bit more about the funding you received and the, sure, um, sure. the business side of things. But before that, it, the so one of the big 
concerns, things that make people feel uncomfortable um, about these kind of distributed marketplaces. And certainly, and I know it's not distributed, but it has some similar attributes, certainly with Silk Road. You know, I think anyone who's who's opposed to buying and selling of, you know, whatever marijuana or mushrooms or something like that, um, you know, on these marketplaces is just like kind of being silly. I mean, it's, it's going to happen anyway. Uh, this reduces the violence. Uh, it's, it's peaceful, whatever. Fine. So let's put that aside, but let's take the, the worst case, the most uncomfortable possible thing you can imagine, which is, I think like a hit, putting out a hit on someone going on. Apparently you could do this on Silk Road. I've, I've, I never went on there myself, but you could go on and like order a hit on someone. Now, now I, I know on Silk Road, it turns out that, uh, at least some of these were like undercover agents, um, selling this service, but what on open bazaar, what prevents that from happening? Or what would your response be to someone who says, you can't just put this network out there, this, this client that allows, you know, me to hire some Russian, you know, mafioso from like a bad eighties movie to, <laughs> to go kill my <laughs> enemy. Right. What, what is your response to kind of the, the illegal, the illicit, the dangers of what kind of activities and transactions could happen? What we try to make clear is that we're writing code that is actually a protocol for allowing people to buy and sell things with each other online. It's a neutral technology and it, the, the morality of these things is not laid at the feet of the people writing the code. The morality is the people actually using the services. And to give another example of what I mean by this, you know, the internet itself allow, is what allows for these types of communications to occur. And in the early 90s, when the internet started to become more mainstream and some commercial activities started happening on it, you had a lot of the same people bringing up the same fears, which is you're allowing people at low cost to be able to transact and do immoral, illicit things. Uh, but I would say that we no longer, uh, perhaps in the, originally people did, but no longer do we look at the creators of the internet and hold them responsible for all the bad things that happen on the internet, right? Like that's, uh, yeah. that would kind of be a ridiculous thing. Uh, the same with text messaging, the same with people who print physical cash, right? Which is used to facilitate a lot of illicit action. <laughs> that, so, that the physical cash is always one of my favorite, um, responses to the people who say the same thing about Bitcoin. Well, it's anonymous. So criminals will use it for all kinds of things. It's like, well, cash is also anonymous and they've been using it for, for, for forever. I mean, do, do you, do you blame the fed for, uh, all the crimes that are committed that, that use dollars? Right. And it's, it's a similar argument for, for open bazaar. So I, when people ask me like morally speaking, am I concerned my own ethics about creating this platform? Absolutely not. Because uh, for what I just described. I don't think people are more responsible for the, the code they create. It's a neutral tool. What I will say is, I also believe that the vast majority of uses for OpenBazaar are going to be positive things that make people's lives better, not negative things that harm other people. And so I'm excited about the idea. I'm not a utilitarian by any means, but I'm excited about the idea of facilitating so much positive trade that's going to help so many people and a little bit of negative trade that might harm people. And yeah. I really think that's how it's going to play. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those interesting, uh, it's like we, we sometimes, I think when anything is new, 
We ask ethical questions that are really universal and we pretend like they're unique problems yes. posed by new technology. I mean, if you, you know, if you said, I'm going to make every road in existence, uh, twice as whatever wide and fewer potholes and it's every, everyone's going to be able to travel faster and everything's going to be more efficient, moving people and goods from point A to point B, you could say, oh, well now you can move illegal goods, uh, easier, or <laughs> you're making it easier for people who want to do bad things with cars. Yes, or, but that, or that's always you, been the case, you know? Yeah, or you could say, well, what you know, are drunk drivers on the road? If they drive off the road and hit someone, are you responsible then because you gave them a, like a better road to use? To right. Drive on? I mean, yeah, it, it, I think it, you're it's, right. What's interesting, I think, is it, it actually forces us to be a little more honest about the society we live in. So yes. um, there are people purchasing everything from substances that they may be addicted to, uh, to, you know, whatever. I mean, people are probably paying people to put a hit on someone right now all the time. And I, and I don't think that a new method of payment, a new method of people connecting with each other to buy goods and services that alone isn't going to sort of change the demand curve for certain types of goods. It's only going to change the way the transactions are done. And in some cases, in the cases of drugs and things like that, um, it probably also reduces the risk of violence occurring during, you know, go, going to meet somebody in a dark alley with a wad of cash to buy some marijuana is probably, uh, more likely to result in, in violence than doing it over, you know, open bazaar or something. Yes. And I think that is the argument that a lot of folks, uh, with the Silk Road make. And I think, I think there's some, there's definitely some merit to it. Uh, one thing I'd add about open bazaar though, is currently the network is not like a, a dark net, meaning, your IP address is exposed when you're using the network. Oh, interesting. So, so it's not yes. it, it's not it's not entirely not. If you know who owns an IP address, you can know who engaged in a transaction. Right. So so if you're a state actor uh, and you're monitoring the network and you have the ability to put an IP address with a physical address, most people can't do that. But for you know state actors, they can. Then. Using OpenBazaar for, you know, people who use OpenBazaar for illegal things are putting a target on their back. I mean, it's not a wise decision at this point uh, because your IP address is exposed. Now, likely... I, I shouldn't have imported that illegal uh, raw organic milk. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but, but now in the future, you know, it may be the case that um, people... Put plugins to allow Tor usage or other anonymizing networks. And, and Tor is a way to to sort of encrypt or anonymize your IP address. Yeah, okay. Exactly. I, I'm so not very very technical. No, that's fine. But anyway, that may happen in the future. But at this point, you know, it's 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 really just sort of fear mongering if people are saying you know Open Bazaar is the next Silk Road. And so so fact, it really it really yeah. is Open Bazaar is really not at all like Silk Road then. It's not, the main benefit is not, hey, it's anonymous. It's, hey, there's no third parties to take fees off the top. So, so I mean, you, you mentioned before not being able to be censored or anything like that. I can see how open bizarre, like there's no central entity that would say you can't sell this, yes. but you still open yourself up to uh, legal consequences because law enforcement would be able to trace any illegal activities on there. So is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, certainly. Yeah. I, 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 we should be careful how we use the censorship. What I'm talking about when we say more about the censorship of, of, of these institutions is that their own terms and conditions restrict users. Uh, for example, 
recently Etsy, was it Etsy? One of the platforms got a lot of people upset because they don't allow the sale of these magic spells that these gaming platforms uh, allow people to sell. Okay. So if, if you want to trade these sort of things with each other or, or other more controversial items like Confederate flags or uh, Washington Redskins uh, merchandise, you know, the platforms are, are banning the sale of those things. And, sure. you know, they're private companies and they should be able to do that. But that type of censorship by a central institution is not possible. On open so, so having some outlet where if the big if the big players all decide that they're going to, you know, whatever, cut off some supplier of something or whatever, there's there's some place to go to get it. And that is Open Bazaar, which uh, not only allows consumers who want those things to get them, but also puts some a little bit of additional competitive pressure on those few gatekeepers to, um, you know, not be quite so uh, restrictive. That's, that's interesting. Okay. So let's talk about the investment. Um, and I do want to save a little bit of time to talk a little bit about your, your sort of personal life and interests. Um, so union square ventures and Andreessen Horowitz, which are like two of the most prominent venture capital firms today. Um, union square is in New York Andreessen Horowitz is in San Francisco. Both of them have, um, sort of founding partners who are very well known. They blog, they speak everywhere. They're, 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 I mean, when they make an investment, it's a big deal. That's a, that's a huge win to get an investment from one of those guys. So this team of volunteers, a handful of volunteers working on this open source project gets a million dollar investment from these, these firms to build, uh, not, it's not for open bazaar itself because that is not a, a business, um, itself. It's as, as you said, it's a distributed thing. It's sort of an open source project, but for a business to kind of be built on top of that platform called OB one. Can you tell me first about what is OB one? And then what was the process and, and the, and the thought, you know, sort of the thought process and the, um, reasons for going and getting funding for that. Sure. So OB one is a company formed by myself, Brian Hoffman and Dr. Washington Sanchez. So sort of three of the people that have worked the longest and, and I would say the hardest on the project. Um, and the idea is we need full-time development to make this platform something that could actually become widely adopted, to make decentralized trade a, a, real, uh, a real phenomenon in the world, right? And we have been working on a bazaar for um, a year basically and making making progress but not at the at the pace that we wanted to see and that our community uh, wanted to see and so we decided to uh, pursue funding and what OB1 specifically does is we have a team of now six people who are basically just all working on development of the OBOZAR platform once we get the first full release out We'll of course continue developing the platform. But so also, how, how's that? Yeah. How's that? What, what's the what's the profit opportunity there? What's the the revenue right, right, model? Right. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 you're fine. I'm just uh, getting there slowly because it is a a unique way to do a profit model, right? Most of the time, VCs don't give money to open source projects, <laughs> right? <laughs> they so, they're, they're they're one of the biggest. Uh, you mentioned IP, um, and I agree yeah, that yeah. intellectual property is a problem. Venture capital firms, man, they've they've got to get away from this model of only wanting to purchase something that uh, you know lawyers can can fight over right so basically the goal is to build this platform and then bootstrap adoption to get the network adopted by the big community initially and then a more mainstream e-commerce community and then the last part is once we have this awesome network and this a whole bunch of people using it 
then we offer services on top of the network to make our money. And the, one of the key services that we're going to offer up front is the moderator service that I talked about to earlier. We want to be one of those moderators operating the network early on that are voluntarily chosen. We're, of course, we're not forcing people to use OB1. So you, you won't have any sort of preferential, like, this is your default or featured choice. It will just right, be one other option out there. Exactly. We're trying to make sure that we're transparent with the community about the fact that, you know, yes, we want to become sort of the the main choice for uh, moderators because we're the core developers, we have a good reputation and whatnot, but we're not going to force people to use us, of course. Um, so anyway, that's how we're going to get some of the money back. And then there's all kinds of other ideas for how uh, we can we can make money. And the, the bottom line is this, if you have a large network of users engaged in this decentralized trade, there are still going to be ways to provide services to them from a centralized institution and we want to be that centralized institution that helps them uh, if there are pain points. That, that is a, it is a very fascinating play. And I read the, um, the blog post that uh, Union Square Ventures put up about the investments and they're very open about this. Like, it's a very interesting play for a venture capital firm to say, okay, here are these guys working on this open source project. They basically need money so that they can work full time on this, to developing this thing. Um, but they know that they can't, you know, just say, Hey, invest in us for something that has no financial return. So if you invest in us, which will allow us to build this platform out, we will also be able to build this thing that does have a revenue model, uh, and gen. And so it's almost like, like some of that capital is helping to build the thing first that has no revenue generating potential in order to build on top of it, something that does. And that's, that's a very interesting, um, I, I, I'm excited to see how it works out, and I'd love to see sort of more more VC firms playing around with those models to kind of help foster something that's bigger than just the one business, but that has so much potential for um, you know many profitable enterprises. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's it was uh, exciting to be working with these really, as you mentioned, really high name. Uh, profile folks to do something like this and, and who knows if their if their play works and we start to see significant adoption of the platform taking away from the centralized model there will be other companies that spring up to provide services to open bazaar users and yeah there's other opportunities to invest in those as well last question on the open bazaar and, and ob1 stuff um so i mean you know i've done i've done fundraising for ventures before and it's it is quite a consuming task in terms of mental energy, time, uh, etc. You guys working as essentially volunteers on Open Bazaar while trying to raise money for for Ob One. What was that like? I mean, and, and I'm assuming none of you guys had experience at raising venture capital before. Maybe <coughs> you did, but but what was that like? Was it was it hard? Was it easy? I mean, did they come to you? Did you go to them? Did you have a hundred meetings before you got a yes? I mean, what what was that process like? No, we were we were actually super fortunate. Uh, I mean, we're very lucky. It's not just luck. Uh, Brian Hoffman has done a great job leading the project. Uh, but more or less, they, they came to us. I mean, we, we asked around for sort of mentorship from a few people in the, in the e-commerce and, and uh, Bitcoin space. Uh, one, one particular guy was extremely, and has been extremely helpful, William McGuire, who is a, uh, an angel investor and also someone who's involved in the in a lot of the, the Bitcoin space. Um, and he knows some of these guys. And basically, we just said, hey, look, we want to make this full time, but we don't know how to do that. What are your thoughts? 
and then uh, it just sort of snowballed from there. We we started talking to Union Square Ventures. They invited us out to New York. We had a, a sit down chat with them, and then we had a few more you know phone calls and stuff. But it, it wasn't the total number of meetings was you know I don't know I don't remember maybe three, uh, <laughs> and then uh, and then it went from there. We got the funding. So and then Adrian Horowitz, um, you know. We talked with them as well, but it, it wasn't too much uh, back and forth. They were invested. I think. I think if you said that you read Brad Burnham's post on USV, yeah, it, it, they 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 get it. Like they understand that they are trying to create this large decentralized network and investing in that first. And I think Andreessen Horowitz and they've been interested in Bitcoin specifically for a while. I think they get it too. So it just happens to be two VC firms who really understand what our vision was and was aligned with it, and just sort of was a, a match made in heaven. That's uh, that's really really cool. Um, okay, so Sam, I was reading a little bit on your bio. Um, you have done like everything. You've you've had a lot <laughs> of different jobs. You've worked in the policy realm. I mean, tell me a little bit personally of kind of your journey from I don't know what what you know in your teens, in your 20s, what you were interested in, what you kind of have pursued, and how you kind of ended up here as a, as a, I mean, it sounds like you're kind of a tech guy now, but you didn't, you didn't sort of start out, you're not like a hardcore programmer, uh, no, developer no. guy, how you ended up in this world and what, what sort of combination of experiences have led you here? Wow, that would, that would take a long time. I'm gonna, <laughs> in, I'll try to give three you three minutes. <laughs> three minutes, okay, okay. <clears throat> so I was homeschooled growing up. Um, and I think that was very impactful in, in not just sort of accepting the, the typical approach to, okay, now you go to college. Okay. Now you get this job. Okay. Now you buy a house, whatever. The, the conveyor um, belt mentality, I call it. Exactly. So, you know, my, my parents kind of forced me to get a job at 14 on a farm, which I'm glad they did because it was so helpful to me learning, uh, you know, how the world really works. Um, and from there, I just had a whole bunch of different random jobs. Uh, I worked in a grocery store. I did demolition. Um, I, I went to college for a year, and then I, I dropped out, uh, and I actually moved out to Michigan. I met my wife at college, and she was only there for a year. And I dropped out and moved out to Michigan in order to pursue her, and we got married out there. Where, where in Michigan? That's where I'm from. Grand Rapids. Oh yeah, I'm I'm from Kalamazoo, so the same oh, wow. same neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah, we're so, actually going to be moving back out there uh, in a few months. Oh really? Okay, we'll have to we'll have to chat about that uh, offline sometime. Um, so so you you went to college. Uh, what was sort of the thought process of why you went, and then why you decided it wasn't worth it to stay? So, uh, I said earlier, I didn't have necessarily the conveyor belt mentality. But there were some aspects of my upbringing which were uh, strongly held. Um, my parents were religious conservatives, and uh, it was sort of an expectation that you know your education was going to be in that path. And so I went to Baptist Bible College in Pennsylvania, um, and I didn't I didn't really have ideas for where I was going to go at that point. It was just sort of. So, so were, uh, were you ever, uh, as a young person or a college student, like somebody who sort of knew what you wanted to be when you grew up, so to speak, or were you always just kind of wandering? Well, it's funny you say that because anyone who knows me now would, would laugh at me saying this, but I wanted to go into the intelligence agencies. 
I was a ham radio operator and I, I knew a lot about you, you wanted to be busting the people who were buying drugs on open bazaar. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, <laughs> I want, I wanted to be actually in, in, uh, signals intelligence. I basically wanted to be CIA or FBI listening to shortwave and, uh, busting people selling drugs to each other out in the ocean, uh, that kind of thing. So it totally obviously went a different way. Um, <laughs> Basically, what happened was I got married young. I dropped out of school. I got married at 20 years old. So uh, did I. We're like, there were like yeah. twins here. This is crazy. It's, uh, I, I was too young to book the hotel room for my wedding night. So <laughs> my, my wife had to do it. She was all of 21 years old. Uh, so anyway, I didn't have a job when we got married. I moved back to New York, uh, upstate New York, where my brother-in-law was. And I did roofing for a while with him. And then I got a job in a factory uh, as an electrician. Uh, I did that for a couple of years in a union. And... I got stories there, but I won't go into it. Not a great, not a great job. Anyway, I decided I wanted to finish my education, so I, I left that uh, factory and I got my degree in political science from Alfred University in upstate New York. And that is actually where I started to change my mind about a lot of these sort of core beliefs that I had around religion, around politics, um, and became more of a, uh, a libertarian, agnostic, and uh, I began to really think about well, what is it I actually want out of life? Like, what is my you know my goals? And that's when I started to get more attracted to technology and building things. Um, but I still this is when the recession happened, so I had to go into the asbestos industry for a while. <laughs> uh, that was no fun either. You were doing as best as you could. Oh, I, I, oh, could, I wow. couldn't resist. I that couldn't resist. A, that was a good one. I think. <laughs> uh, so so anyway, I, I got a. A uh, associate ship in Washington D.C. with a nonprofit uh, doing uh, sort of uh, policy work, and I did a few different areas of policy work. Some environmental. Eventually, I settled on technology policy. I did that for uh, for four years, and that's the last job I held before I I left to to do this startup. So that's sort of how I I got into the tech space, broadly speaking. So, so, I had three children along the way. So, um, and we're going to chat for a few minutes about uh, the children and unschooling as well, but you're, you're sort of the, like an exact, um, like a case study and something that I talk to, to young people about all the time, which is, look, what you're going to be doing in 10 or 20 years, what you may love to do, what may be a perfect fit for you, it either probably doesn't exist yet or you wouldn't know how to define it or you certainly don't know that it exists. So there's, there's no way to sort of plot a very clear path to it. And you're a great example of this. I mean, you did a lot of different things. What you're doing now with Open Bazaar wasn't even possible. It didn't even exist 10 years ago. What would you say to someone who's young, who's, who's 18, 19, 20, 22, whatever, and they don't know exactly what they want to do? They're in kind of a position that you were in, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, are there any kind of mindsets or attributes as you wander and explore and try things that you think are helpful towards sort of helping you get into something that you do find fulfilling? Yeah, I would tell them to look up Praxis. Uh, <laughs> I did not pay yeah. him for that, but I'll send some Bitcoin <laughs> your way. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, I, it's a tough question because I, there's not a lot of advice I think that I can give that's going to be like broadly applicable to to everyone other than to say just be a critical thinker and don't worry about what other people's expectations for you are 
Like a lot of people are guided throughout life because they are trying to meet other people's expectations and they haven't really sat down and thought what it is that they want to get out of life. So just be introspective, think about what it is you want, think about how to get there and don't worry about what other people uh, have in mind for you. You have uh, three kids, is that right? I do. Okay, and what are their ages? My oldest, Emma, is seven. Uh, Annabelle is five, and then my son, Sam, is two years old. Okay, so you were homeschooled, and now with your own kids, you've sort of taken it a step further in the radical direction and to unschooling. Was that was that a result of kind of um, you know pursuing, studying different methods of education, or was that just like based on your own experience, you wanted to take it a little further? Was that tied into your libertarian beliefs? How did how did the decision that you and your wife came to to, to unschool your kids come about? It's sort of all the things that you just mentioned. Um, a lot of it just comes down to a different view of childhood and of parenting than I think a lot of other people have. I think a lot of parents basically view their job as making their kids successful. They judge themselves based on whether or not their children are successful. And success is often defined as society sort of defines it, which is getting an education, a good job, getting married, getting a house, you know, that's success. If they don't have education, if they don't have a job, if they're not married, if they're renting, you know, boy, they're failures. I failed as a parent. And I just, I fundamentally disagree with that. Success to me for parenting is basically do, is, is impressing on my children the importance of understanding the following. Like, who are they? What are their core beliefs? You know, who are they as people? What is it that they value? What do they want to be in the future, right? What do they want to get out of life? Do they understand that? Are they grounded in reality about how they can actually get there, how they can, you know, get to the, the place in life that they want to be? And then, and perhaps most importantly, recognizing that they alone can make it happen, right? And in psychology, it's called having an internal locus of control versus an external. Like, do they have the belief that they can actually control the events affecting them? Or do they think other people have that control? And so if I can impress all those things on my children, I view that as being a successful parent, not the outcomes of whatever you know happens to them. So that's why I find unschooling so appealing. All I do is try to tell them these things and model these things for them, and then they go off and, and live their lives. And so the other aspect of why I find it so appealing is I think a lot of libertarians view this wrong too. We, we view childhood as a time to learn how to be an adult. Like that's what we think childhood is. This is the time you spend to learn how you can be an adult. That's a shame because it's sort of telling children that their value is derived from how good an adult they'll eventually be. It's not about who they are now. And it's also modeling like what success looks like for them. And I think they need to determine that for themselves. So I view, I view value, I view liberty uh, as valuable for, for adults in and of itself, right? It's just valuable for people to pursue their own ends. That's true for kids too, Yeah. right? So they should have the liberty to do the things that they, that they want as a child and I should not be forcing uh, them to conform to my expectations for them as an adult while they're still young and can enjoy their time. So. My my colleague uh, Zach Slayback has, has written on uh, basically like let's abolish childhood this concept of childhood and 
you know, obviously in, in common parlance, it's, it's a meaningful word. It's useful to refer to a child. You just, you just know it's someone who's younger or whatever, but, but there's something about this concept. It's almost like if, if we just use the word humanhood instead to talk, to talk about a human being, uh, throughout their life. And we think of children as actual human beings with the same level of, you know, we should be afforded the same level of dignity and respect and, and, and liberties. And you start thinking about some of the things we put children through, some of the ways that we yeah. think about them and look at them. You know, if you if you described what happens in a typical school as an adult and said, yeah, this is my job. This is where I work. They, I have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. We have to stand in single file. We have to be quiet. We have to do work on whatever we're told to work on. When a timer goes off, we got to switch no matter what. You'd be like, that is a horrible job. Get out of there. That's demeaning. That's like dehumanizing. But but it's children, so it's okay. We Children should be treated this way as a sort of idea that like there's something different. There's sort of less dignity afforded to a human below a certain age. And I think that whole concept, or like, like you said, that the point of being a child is to practice for becoming an adult. But no, the point of being human is just to live, live fully human at all, at all moments, you know? So yes. do you, did you have, as I did, my wife and I have, have both experienced this and still are, I kind of came to accept intellectually all of these arguments for something more radical than I grew up. We, we were already interested in homeschooling and we're homeschooling um, initially. But, you know, from reading a lot of different things from from John Holt and John Taylor Gatto and Peter Gray and different yeah. things, com- coming coming to these conclusions that like unschooling, just radical, almost, you know, un- unschooling or, or even like unparenting, just giving kids a lot of freedom and respect. Yes, this is all right. And I can give you all the arguments but it, it's taken a lot longer for that to alter my behavior and the habits and the and the patterns in my brain because of the way that I've grown up and the way that um, you know society is. And so I still have all these moments where my instinctive reaction is like to just be a command and control parent or to, to impose structure. And when I catch myself intellectually, I'll be like, okay, I know this is not what I want to do. But I don't have that many practical tools in my toolkit. I don't know what else to draw from and how to how to manage those interactions. And that's been a real learning process. Have you faced a similar struggle or has that been has that been something that's been easier? I mean, are your kids you started, it sounds like a little bit younger than than I did with my kids in, in sort of this mindset. But what, what has that been like? Yeah, I think the difference for us is um, and I don't know how old your children are now, but because we started from the very beginning, like they've never been in school and and I came to this stuff pretty early on in, in how old they were. Um, and because my oldest is still only seven and just sort of in at school age now, if you will, that it's been, it's been really easy, actually. Uh, I have not seen that struggle uh, personally. And a part of the reason, for me at least, is I think because my oldest, Emma, is just absolute voracious reader and absolutely just devours everything that's put in front of her. Uh, and so she would be a typically very good traditional student. So I don't worry that much. You know, I don't worry about having to push her to do much of anything academically. Now, if uh, my second Annabelle gets to the school age and she's not as strong uh, based on what a traditional good student should be, would I then have the impulse to come in and sort of, you know, take a more traditional model. I probably would. Uh, but part of that's also just like expectations that others have on me for how my kids should be yeah. raised. And I need to examine myself and say, well, is that what's best for my kids? And I, I think it's not. I mean, I, I really, it's hard to do. Yep. It's hard. It's really hard to do, especially 
you know, maybe for like my wife who, you know, her, her family, they're not, they don't have a lot of the same ideas as we do. So for, for, for us to just go and say, well, we're not going to get a curriculum. We're not going to teach them <laughs> specific stuff. Like that's hard for people to wrap their heads around, but is it what's best for the kids? And I think the answer is yes. So uh, we're, we're sticking to it so far. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. My, my oldest is 10 and we, we were unschooling him for the first, you know, several, I mean, not unschooling, I'm sorry, homeschooling. And um, when he was about six, it was really about seven is when we sort of fully just stopped trying to do any, I mean, for, you know, when he was like five and six, we were trying to do stuff and whatever, and it just wasn't, wasn't working. And we kind of made the full, the sort of full unschooling progression between maybe when he was seven and eight. And, and with him, it's been the hardest because we did start out with that mindset and it's been more of adjustment. My daughters are younger and it's, it's a little bit more second nature. It's a little bit, it's a little bit easier with sort of each kid and with each, with each passing month, with each passing year, this way of thinking becomes more of a habit and more of a natural, um, you know, more natural rather than just something that I understand intellectually. So, um, Sam, thank you so much for coming on. You can find, uh, Sam's, uh, project open bazaar at openbazaar.org. I'm really excited to see where this goes. Um, like I said, I can go on there and buy some, you know, crazy illegal, I don't know, some, something that's banned by the government, like, a you know, children's lemonade that it doesn't pass safety standards or something like that. <laughs> um, and Sam, you have a personal website, samuelrpatterson.com as well. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Isaac. I really enjoyed it. You bet. And perhaps sometime I'll bring you back to talk a little bit more about intellectual property. I'm, I'm very interested in that topic as well. So we'll, we'll hopefully Sounds get you back sometime. Good.